from the beginning, we have trusted the human capacity to use reason and draw conclusions about religion. Each of us ultimately chooses what is sacred or meaningful to us. Each of us ultimately chooses how we embrace the void. Pathetic earthlings, hurling your bodies out into the void without the slightest inkling of who or what is out here. Life just some kind of horrific joke without a punchline? That we're all just biding our time until the sweet, sweet release of death? No! Don't save Riley! <laughs> Take her to the moon for me. Okay? Welcome, friends, to episode 253 of Embrace the Void, where it still feels weird doing this while someone else is in the room again. I am your host, Aaron, and my guest this week is the Reverend Dr. Todd Eckloff, author of The Gadfly Papers, Three Inconvenient Essays by One Pesky Minister. Reverend Eckloff was removed from fellowship with the Unitarian Universalist Church as a result of complaints made by members of the church in response to his dissemination of the Gadfly Papers at a Unitarian Universalist Alliance event in Spokane, Spokane, excuse me, in 2019. In the papers, Reverend Eckloff argues the UUA has succumbed to safetyism and PC culture in a way that undermines, he claims, the core UU principles of questioning orthodoxy. The solution he recommends is a divorce dividing Unitarian Universalism into those who prefer the current approach and those who prefer what they view as a liberal alternative. Todd, would you like to say hi to the voids? Yes. Uh, hello to the void. And I, I thank you for letting me uh, jump into the void with you today. I really appreciate it. Aaron, I really appreciate I'm not sure that you and I will be on the same page on a lot of things, but man, I appreciate the, the research uh, and the open mindedness uh, and the approach that you take towards your guests. So that, that's why I'm here today. Well, I appreciate that. And I, I suspect that we will not be agreeing on a lot of things today, but I appreciate you coming and having this chat as well. I'm pretty sure you are, in fact, my first reverend on the show. And I appreciate that it is a UU <laughs> reverend since I myself was raised in the UU church. And I want to mention, um, besides sort of trying to do slightly longer uh, descriptions in the beginning in general, there might be a little bit more explaining on my side in this episode because there's a lot of UU inside baseball here that we're going to end up talking about. Mm -hmm. um, but I want to also give you, you know, plenty of time to explain uh, where you're coming from. The reason we're having this conversation is because a member of your congregation, I believe, reached out after hearing an episode of mine with Mandisa Thomas discussing um, what they thought were sort of similar issues within movement atheism. And they, I think, had also probably heard my own discussions about my UU upbringing and thought that we could have a uh, interesting chat. So to, to get us started, do you want to tell folks a bit about your background and like what motivated you to write the Gadfly papers? Sure. Yeah. I was actually born in the San Francisco Bay Area in 1964. So that's making me uh, an old man, I think, as time <laughs> getting there. And I actually started off as, as in an unchurched family, but as a teenager became a, a Southern Baptist and then actually 
went to a Southern Baptist college and was ordained as a Southern Baptist minister and served very briefly in a small Baptist church in Talpa, Texas. But my major was in philosophy, and, and this was at a Baptist college, but you know, they really taught higher critical thinking. And I, I think I had the Baptist educated out of me by the time I, I left and I went to seminary and it didn't last about a semester before I realized this just wasn't something I believed in anymore. I went back to school to get a, a degree in communication so I could do something practical with my life. That, that took about a year and uh, ended up in television news and corporate video production for about 16 years. So that's part of my background. But shortly after I got married uh, in 1988 to my spouse, Peggy, who was also a seminary student uh, and, and also dropped out of kind of seminary and Baptist life, we really missed church. And we'd heard about these liberal Unitarians who didn't really have dogma or creed. And, and so we gave it a try and we became mm-hmm. Unitarians back at that time. And about 10 years later, uh, I re-entered the ministry as a Unitarian. So I've been in Unitarian ministry since uh, 99 and uh, have been here at this, I served a little church in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, where we lived for 25 years, where we met, had our kids, family, that kind of thing. And then moved here to Spokane in, uh, in 2011. And I've been the minister here in Spokane, Washington ever since. Uh, and you did a pretty good synopsis of the book. One, one thing I would I would say before I go into my reasons for for writing it mm-hmm. is uh, yeah. I, I wouldn't say that I actually argue that we should that the the denomination should split. What I what I really argue is that there are some unresolved differences from a merger of two religions that came together in 1961, and because of those unresolved differences it has led us to this sort of ill-defined religion it has become today that is no longer connected to its, its roots. And I argue in the chapter, I want a divorce, that I think we should seriously start talking about dissolving the, the Unitarian Universalist Association or that relationship. Not that I'm calling for it. In fact, if you, you know, read the, the sort of last part of the book, I say, uh, you know, I don't believe relating to each other this way is tenable or sustainable for Unitarian Universalism. Either we reconnect with our historic roots, dealing at last with our theological and class conflicts, so we can return to and fulfill our promise of establishing a universal non-sectarian religion of humanity, or, or we allow a misguided identitarian philosophy to continue segregating us from each other until all that remains necessary for the dissolution of our denomination is mere formality. What I'm really trying to do is raise alarms that we, we've already split because we can't talk to each any talk to each other anymore, and I hope that I wrote my book hoping that by raising some of the issues that have alarmed me, that Unitarian Universalists everywhere would start to kind of maybe maybe share my concerns, and we would force a dialogue. Uh, unfortunately, that's not happening. But the reason I wrote the book is I started noticing some of these Ill, what I would call illiberal anomalies in our religion that seem not mm-hmm. only unfamiliar, but the opposite of what I understood our religion to be about. And I wanted to raise awareness so that we could perhaps turn it around. Yeah. Could you say a little more there about, you know, if, so it sounds like you agree sort of that I've described your thesis. Could you unpack a little bit what liberal values in particular you claim that the UUA is sort of failing to uphold? 
Yeah. So uh, I'll do it as, as uncomplicated as I can. And you're, you're a philosopher, so you could probably do this better than me. But I, I, I think that, you know, for me, uh, when, I, when I talk, I, I've identified myself as a liberal for most of my adult life. And without shame or embarrassment, and even even when Ronald Reagan and, and you know was president, and he was you know he, you know the Cold War had sort of fallen apart. We lost that external enemy, and it began turning inward towards liberals in this country. I still called myself a liberal, and I'm proud to be a liberal. And what what that means to me is that we are, you know, it, it is an ideology that that started with the pre-Socratic philosophers 2,600 years ago. When for the first time, some try to describe meaning and reality in natural rather than supernatural terms, something that Bertrand Russell said, you know, had never happened, nothing like it had ever happened before in history and has not happened since. And, and it was Which is a little Western centric, but sure. Yeah, let's let's well, we'll it set is aside that a little bit. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, no. And I know exactly what you mean. Right. Yeah. There were a few uh, other cultures yeah. that may have done a little bit of that before the Greeks. But yes, let's let's be, before before and certainly around the same time. So, yeah, I, I would agree. And you're the philosopher. Uh, I have a, an undergrad in philosophy. You're, you're the professional. So I, I, I yield to you on that. But I but I would agree. Yeah, it certainly can be Western centric. Nevertheless, it was an astonishing moment, you know, for for humanity, for humans anywhere to be able to sort of, you know, stop interpreting the the, the noise in the clouds as, as the gods striking hammers or whatever it might be and try to figure out what's really happening. And, and with that, I think naturally it naturally leads to a, a uh, an affirmation of our humanity. Right. We have to believe in ourselves enough to believe we can actually find the answers. So there's mm-hmm. there's a positive there's a positiveness. I call it, you know, humanism with a small H. I, I am a humanist. Uh, I, I'm actually occupy the pulpit of the founder of religious humanism, John Dietrich, back in in the 19, early 1900s. I don't consider myself a humanist in the in the sense of, of 20th century the 20th century philosophy by that name. I consider mm-hmm. myself. Uh, a, a classical humanist in, in the philosophical sense of these pre-Socratic philosophers, and, and that those ideas were were expanded upon and rediscovered during the Renaissance, and then flourished and were expanded upon even more during the Enlightenment, which was the source of uh, many of the values the founders of this nation, and, and I know that term "founders" is problematic too. But let's just say, according to the the American mythology, uh, you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And and they, uh, you know, in, in in addition to that, uh, American Unitarianism was founded at that same time, often by some of those same those same uh, personalities. Mm-hmm. And in, in studying the Enlightenment and the philosophy, I I would boil it down to reason, freedom, and tolerance. That these were the, the the this this was the categorical imperative, if you will, that 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 ultimately, uh, this new way of thinking, this uh, enlightened way of thinking, was trying to promote, and and I, I you know Unitarian Universalism I, I think is you know may even be de- defined as the only liberal religion in, in America, hmm. 
because those values are essential to it, to, to what it, what it is, what it is about, or at least what it has been about. I guess it um, depends on whether you buy the argument that wokeness is a religion or not, in which case there might be two of them perhaps, but, uh, yes. Um, well, say so, more, say so, yeah. more about that. Say more about that for me. I, I didn't, oh, I didn't you know, thought. that's just, a, that's an ongoing argument that like a lot of people claim that wokeness or social justice itself is a kind of religion of the left, essentially. Um, I don't believe that came up in your particular arguments on this one, but it's one that comes up sort of quite frequently um, mm -hmm. and that I've mm -hmm. discussed with other folks. Um, but I want, yeah, so you've got your values there. You've got reason. Um, what do you say? Reason, reason freedom, and freedom, tolerance. Tolerance, yeah. Right. And under I, I think under I the umbrella of a common humanity. Yeah. And I, I do think, you know, um, setting aside a bunch of caveats that like, yeah, that's sort of a reasonable portrayal of basic liberal principles. And so, um, so you're claiming that the UUA is failing to achieve or live up to, to those principles. Um, and I want to look at some of the specific examples that, that you talked about in the book. Um, but I, I sort of want to ask more generally first, you know, I, my understanding of liberalism being also raised a liberal, um, is that like the idea here is, those things are good sort of not just as ends in themselves, but as a means to achieving better quality of life for human beings, that better ideas, better outcomes will arise. Perhaps to some extent, we think they are also ends in themselves potentially, right? We want to value potentially, you know, personal autonomy separate from the consequences of doing so. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of times it's often the argument is made, this is how the best ideas will emerge. You know, this is how society will make progress, et cetera. Um, and I, yeah, so I'm, I'm curious what ideas you feel like are being sort of prevented from emerging within the UU community as a result of this this change that you think has occurred? Well, I, I, I would say all, all of them, uh, you know, just in general, that, that the freedom to to disagree is, is no longer uh, something that exists without repercussions. Uh, reason, I think, is, has been all but thrown out the window. Uh, I don't, I, I, you know, I, I, I wrote my, my, my third essay in the Gadfly papers was actually the, the first essay I started working on, and it was to try to show kind of a, the use of, of logic in a very extreme way. Since this is one of the sources of inspiration we, the UUA holds in its, uh, in its bylaws, and instead was, you know, re the reaction was that, you know, in two different letters of condemnation that, that logic and reason are classic forms of white supremacy culture, which I, I don't agree with at all, although I certainly understand that people use uh, all sort make up all sorts of reasons to discriminate against people. And, and so, you know, tolerance is, is, is right along with that. We're not, we don't, we don't tolerate our differences like we once did. Uh, we could come together and we could have these discussions and we would not be angry with each other. We probably what would happen is those ideas would would merge together. The the the, the valid the valid points that, uh, you, you know, this this new mindset, I, I, I always hate to label it. Uh, Aaron, you use the term wokeness. Uh, cancel culture. Yeah, you're safe PC. to use that here. I stand by that as a concept. Okay, I, I, I'll use it, but I, I want to say that I, I, I by no means, I by no means desire to diminish those who hold these thoughts into one lump category. Right. Well, People so in the, in the book, you use PC culture, right? 
which is yes. sort of, I would argue, a precursor to wokeness in this sense. And, mm -hmm. and in terms of yeah. the way it is characterized in society, they're both characterized as being effectively centered around safetyism towards ideas and language, it seems to me. Um, yeah. But and I just want to the... make sure, yeah, yeah, just sort of before we before we dive into mm -hmm. like wokeness and all of that kind of stuff, I just want to make sure because sometimes folks will, will claim there are specific ideas that are not being allowed to be addressed in these communities, you know, um, gender critical ideas or something like that. But you're it doesn't seem like you're claiming that there's any actual specific ideas that you can point to that you think will get you excommunicated. Um it's just that you believe there's a general feeling of censoriousness, essentially. Well, it would be yes. That that's my complaint. But but I I think that it would be dis, disingenuous of me to to say that the the particular uh, a particular approach to anti-racism work in the UUA it, it is the one issue that cannot be questioned. It's sort of uh, you know, become like a, like a doctrine, a, a sort of creed in the religion. And anybody who questions it or offers an alternative is immediately labeled as a racist. And so that comes up a little bit in my book, because those are some of the examples of what I'm talking about. Uh, yeah. 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 So, so, so that, I think that's, that's, I think that's a, yeah, that's a real, I would just say that's probably a a, a, a a more honest way of saying it that you know that that the, this particular approach of, towards anti-racism is 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 approached in an illiberal way that does not value freedom, reason, and tolerance. Okay, great. That that help that helps. So we can say criticism of of the current anti-racism paradigm is the kind of ideas that are being uh, suppressed um, in yes. your view. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah. And I want to talk about that. Um, I, I want to sort of go in order a little bit here because I feel like in the book, you first sort of lay out the concept of safetyism, drawing on the coddling of the American minds by Haidt and uh, Lukianoff. You, you use that for the name of your first um, essay. Um, and I want to. You know, I want to be clear, I think, on my own sort of priors, biases, having sort of gone through the materials that you've presented and, and like my own additional research on top of it. You know, when, when we first chatted, I had the impression that you were claiming that like the UUA was under the control of individuals who were exercising a kind of top down censorship towards, in this case, I think you're agreeing sort of anti-anti-racism um, or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. But I feel like having read through these things, I'm kind of skeptical of your framing that this is the, like of the conflict and of the details of these events. Um, and I'm also concerned about sort of the framing of other related ideas and concepts leading up to this. So I, I want to talk mm -hmm. about safetyism first because you draw on coddling um, and you specifically draw at length on the part of coddling where they describe Milo Yiannopoulos's the events around Milo Yiannopoulos' talk at Berkeley, where mm. uh, there were sort of violent protests prior to the event that led to the cancellation of the event. Um, can you do, can you please sort of explain sort of your understanding of those events and how you think that embodies safetyism as you understand it as a concept? Well, uh, I think that the, as, as I remember that, that section of the book and that story of, uh, you know, th that was based largely on the reporting and coddling of the American mind, 
Uh, Milo Yiannopoulos was invited by some group at the university to speak. His presence caused quite a bit of consternation. Reportedly, around 1,500 people were involved in some sort of protests that uh, shut shut down that event, but also led to some uh, instances of violence that were fairly disturbing. Uh, somebody who was videotaping it with his uh, phone, who was himself a liberal, was, was uh, beat up. Uh, reportedly, uh, another person, while being interviewed uh, with a, a red MAGA hat on, was, was maced in the eyes. Uh, these, mm-hmm. sort of, uh, these sort of things that, uh, that occurred. Now, obviously, we can't blame 1,500 people for the actions of, of three, the three people that I use as anecdotes based upon the information in that, in that story. Uh, but this is, this is interesting. One of the things I've been kind of criticized, was criticized early on for, was citing Milo Yiannopoulos' name uh, and, and sort of as if I were in the process somehow defending him. Uh, I, I, I'm not. I mean, I don't, I don't really, I, I, I've heard him on TV a little bit. You know, I found him to be kind of a strange mm-hmm. guy. And people have said, well, maybe you should have used somebody, you know, a different, a different figure or something. But I, you know, I, I mean, I, I would, I, I do believe Maya Yiannopoulos has a right to speak and a right to move about the country and a, and, and a, a right to say what he wants to say. Uh, and I, and I do defend that. So I'm glad to have used his name in, in my book, if that has to prove the point, but uh, you know, I, I, I can't remember exactly where that is in the book. I wish I'd have dog-eared it for you. But if I remember right, that section, I, I really just like used his name one time. I said, you know, sort of to, to set the context of the event, right? That, uh, it's, on, it's on page five. It's, it's right at the beginning. Right at the beginning. So, one, one of the first yeah. things that you reference. Okay, um, yeah. But but it says, uh, okay, I'm sorry. I, I'm, not, I'm not seeing you here, but... Yeah, so I don't know. I, that probably doesn't answer your question. It gets it gets off track just a little bit, but I do think that that uh, you, you know my history is even here in Spokane. First of all, I, I was I was uh, fired from a, a job in Louisville many years ago after after taking a public stand in favor of gay marriage. You know, I, I'm I'm not at all. Uh, in fact, I've been a gay rights activist for years. Uh, I, I worked diligently to help help the first uh, marriage law that was uh, voted on or approved on by voters occur in our country here here in Washington. And uh, prior to prior to that, the thing that got me started on that is Rick Santorum was going to be coming to Spokane to Sorry, protest. I'm, I'm concerned we're going to get a little far off off, oh, okay. um, off topic here. Oh, sure, are you sure. are you just sort of presenting your, your kind of bona fides? As a, a leftist, is that why we, we're, we're you're, you've, you're no, talking no, about? No, no, I'm really wanting to say that reference to Milo there. No, what I'm really wanting to say is that my history is that I, I have not engaged in in uh, in events that would protest somebody's presence in my community. And okay. when we were going to protest Rick Santorum's presence. I said, no, I said, I, I will demonstrate my values, but I don't want to be part of a protest that says he can't be here. That's okay. tantamount so, to exiling somebody. So when it comes to Milo Yiannopoulos, uh, I don't want mm-hmm. to protest his presence on this planet either or his or his voice. 
Uh, I, I just yeah. choose to disagree with it. So I do think this highlights my concern with the way you portray what happened around Milo Yiannopoulos. And this is a problem with the coddling account as well. I'm not sure if you did sort of your own additional research on top of referencing coddling's account of it. Um, are you aware that like the reason, the primary reason given for why they were trying to shut down the event is because at a prior event, Milo had outed a trans individual in, you know, a trans uh, student in the crowd during the event. And that in this particular case, he was credibly claiming that he was going to name undocumented um, immigrant students in the Berkeley community. Um, is that was that something that you were aware of? And I'm curious, like, if so, why wasn't it included in, this, in in like your account of the reasons? Because it seems like that to me is a much more understandable reason why somebody would violently protest than simply not wanting to hear someone's, you know, offensive ideas or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm not I'm not aware of that. Uh, no, I'm not. And uh, as I process it, I, I, I just I, I guess my question to you would be. Are you saying then that the violence was justified because he was? No, he was no, absolutely not. not. I'm okay. just pointing okay. out. No, no. What I'm specifically pointing out is. So so one of the ideals that you put forward in your book is this kind of charitability approach, right? Where you have to mm -hmm. be charitable in your understanding of the people you're disagreeing with. Mm -hmm. And in my reading of your book, I felt that over and over, it seemed that you were not giving a charitable account of the actual opposing position or a variety of events. Um, so for example, I think you could have given a much more charitable account of why uh, people thought, you know, uh, let me put it this way, at least, I, my impression is you give it an account that suggests that the only reason they were violently protesting is because they simply didn't want to hear his ideas, which is a very different story than they believed that he was going to bring about genuine material harm to members of their community involving state-sponsored enforcement of immigration, for example. That's not a fear about just ideas. That's a fear of genuine harm. And that paints a very different picture, whatever you think, one way or another, about whether that ultimately justifies the violence. Um, it feels to me, though, that, that by leaving that out, I think both you and, and Coddling are sort of portraying the situation as being worse than it actually is in terms of uh, students' um, resistance to hearing, you know, conflicting ideas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe so, uh, Aaron, I, I'm, I'm only limited to the information I have. I'll, I'll be honest with you that. And I, and I'm certainly, uh, limited by my biases as much as I would prefer not to be. So I, you know, I, I would say that, you know, any, any book obviously can be criticized for leaving out, uh, information that might be pertinent to context. So if I did that here, I, I would apologize for it. You know, no, I was not aware of, of the information about Milo uh, Yiannopoulos' uh, intentions at, at this, uh, or at least reported intentions, you know, at this event at Berkeley in 2017. And, and I, I don't know. I mean, as, as you say, it doesn't justify the, the, the violent protest, perhaps it makes the violent protest a bit more understandable. Uh, and, and had I, you know, had I known that I probably would have added a line that, you know, some say this, uh, that this was his reasoning behind it. I, 
you know, the skeptic in me wonders, you know, is that is that post justification of of that behavior after it was so widely reported as being, uh, you know, obviously a an improper reaction. Uh, oh, I'm so, sorry. No, that behavior yeah. was reported prior to the like, like specifically his own company was promoting that they were going to do this prior to the event. Mm, like this okay. wasn't like a, a, you know, conspiracy theory. This was like he was proudly proclaiming that he was going to do this in a way that was quite credible. Um, your drudge report or somebody, you know, someone yeah. who's not intending to lie about Milo was presenting this. Um, and, and look, the reason I ask this is because um, I did get the impression in reading this that like perhaps you came to coddling with a uh, uncritical eye to some extent and that like it didn't um, and that this then unfortunately I think reproduces this idea from coddling that this is evidence that students in these communities are somehow becoming more intolerant just towards ideas in this kind of way. Another example that I want to point to um, from from what you what you presented in your book, you cite the fire org survey, which they cite as well in coddling, which um, says that fifty eight percent of college students said it's important not to be exposed to intolerant or offensive ideas. Um, mm-hmm. There was substantial criticism of that survey that it didn't actually explain or seek to assess what individuals meant by intolerant or offensive ideas. And so it makes that statistic kind of clickbaity rather than useful because they might just mean like Holocaust denial or something like that, right? Um, mm-hmm. Which I think we might all agree it would be better that people not be exposed to Holocaust denial. Um, and, and, you know, I wanted to add, I looked at the study. It also found that 87% of students feel comfortable expressing their ideas and opinions in college classrooms. And that drop, that number doesn't go below 80%, even for white students or Republicans. I personally think that those numbers do not represent a kind of massive crisis of self-censorship, but at least I think one would want to include more of that information rather than just that one scary sounding, you know, a majority of students are against intolerant or offensive speech. Um, You know, if your goal is charitable dialogue, why wouldn't you also sort of include those sides of the argument in your, in your analysis? Mm hmm. Well, one, I, you know, I, I'd have to say I don't have access to all the statistics in the world. I had access to those statistics and I, and I trusted the sources and, and I still do. And, and I understand how statistics can be uh, misleading. I understand how they can be biased. I understand how we can use statistics to make just about any point we want. So uh, that may, there may be some fair criticism there. Uh, but, you know, I, I've also, you know, spoken to a lot of college professors. I read a lot of articles uh, over the years uh, mm-hmm. about professor, professors who are talking about the, the intolerance on campus and the fear of, of speaking their minds. Uh, I, I, you know, I read articles of, of students going in and trying to stop uh, philosophy classes because, uh, you, you know, they, they're, they're, the Greeks were white supremacists, these, these sort of anecdotes that come along. So uh, I don't, I, right. I just don't believe that that it's enough to just sort of dismiss it as a response to behavioral uh, issues, but to ideas themselves. So it may be that there is some truth to both of these. Well, so the problem here I see is not, is this ever happening ever? 
I think we can all agree that there are some extreme events. Um, I think the problem is the claim is that this is a widespread issue um, mm -hmm. and anecdotes can't prove that. You need data to prove that, it seems to me. And the data from the Fire Org study, which by for folks who are not familiar, that's the author of Coddling. That's his organization. So it's his study. You know, he has access to the data. It's publicly available data. He could have certainly included the less scary statistics about how, like, the vast majority of people do not feel like they're being censored on campus in this kind of way. Um, because it seems like you can't respond to those statistics with, but there are these few extreme cases and some people who are afraid and have that be like a legitimate sort of justification for claiming that this is a massive widespread problem. Mm hmm. Do you disagree? Yeah, yeah, I, I do, I do, and and I can't, uh, you know, I can't, I can't argue against that because I don't have the data with me either, right? So it would really require. I mean, I can give lots of anecdotal experiences or anecdotal stories that I've heard, or or uh, some of the many articles that are right, you know, where these things are being written about. I can talk about my own experience, uh, and so uh, you know, I, I I do not see this as a is, is something that is uh, being exaggerated by uh, by people who have who share my concerns. I, I just okay. Given the experiences I've had, the exposures I've had, I, yeah. I, I would disagree with that with that perspective. Although I I appreciate your perspective, and uh, you know I'm open to it. I mean I'm I'm open to to finding more data and 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 seeing more research on it, and and uh, I, I would be happy. I would be happy if it were being exaggerated. Okay, fair enough. Um, well, then let's let's focus in on your anecdotes a little bit more, um, and we'll mm -hmm. move away from the data. Right? Uh, you give a couple of examples from UU specific events that you believe sort of make the claim that this is a problem, at least within UUA, if not. Um, more broadly, right? And so let's talk mm -hmm. about the first one, which um, and these, these were ones that I. I, I suggested that we chat about ahead of time. Um, the first one was, uh, I'll just give a little bit of background and you can tell me if I've, I've mischaracterized this at all. Uh, so in 2019, in UU World Magazine, there was an article published called After LG and B. Um, mm -hmm. This was an article, this was the first article, as far as I can tell, that was ever published in the magazine addressing trans issues. Um, and it received sort of, e even though it was arguably pro-trans, it received substantial criticism for the content of the article. Um, and because it was written by a cis mother who centered her experience of adjusting to trans issues in relation to her child, rather than centering you know primarily the experiences of actual trans uu individuals themselves mm -hmm. um in response to that criticism it appears as far as i can tell that there was actually substantial dialogue and an updating of the editorial process at uu world uh, certainly it sounds like it was a very contentious time um, but it does seem like there was dialogue and progress made on the issue um, so if that's, unless I'm mischaracterizing the events there, how would you argue that that is an example of a safetyism problem and not the process working the way it's supposed to? Yeah, well, I, I don't think I would agree that the, that the process worked the way it was supposed to or that there was dialogue. It, it's, uh, in my, my recollection is there was lots of outrage online about this and, and, and some were calling for the editor to be fired 
for this. And by the way, you know, it was a po- it was a positive uh, ar- uh, argument in favor of transgenderism for those of, for towards those of us who are not uh, transgender to to work on getting the language right so that we're not unintentionally offensive uh, to people. That was the essence of it. There was a, a, another trans uh, article uh, in that same uh, magazine, that same issue, that was written by a transgender organization about some of the statistics, uh, or, or at least the information they have from trans folks and their experiences of being unwelcome in UU churches, or feeling unwelcome at least in UU churches. So the, the, the you know my my impression was that the president of the UUA. Uh, went in and, and instructed the uh, the editor to write an apology, which she sent out a statement saying that that he was going to do so for the terrible harm that had been caused by this, and and she uh, spent a lot of time apologizing for the harm that was caused by it. It is that you know, as Codling of the American Mind talks about, uh, you know, th- this this uh, extending harm into. Uh, hearing things we disagree with as being a form of concept creep. So that was the connection that I was making there. Okay. It seems like you said some inconsistent things there. So let me try to parse this a little bit. Um, sure. First, there's a, there's a size problem again here, right? Your claim is there was a lot of anger online, which I, I don't deny. And also that there was, I get, you give the impression there was a substantial call for this editor to be removed that I can't find. I can find a little bit of like one or two Facebook posts that suggest something along those lines, but it seems that I can tell the vast majority of critics were not calling for that, nor was that mm-hmm. ever even remotely yeah. on the table as an actual thing that the, you know, the, uh, the board or the people involved in this were actually interested in doing. Do you run a risk here of, overinflating, you know, a couple of angry people on Facebook as proof that an entire organization, because we should be clear, the person was not removed, right? The article is still up as far as I know, and follow-ups have been done. There was a, there were further articles that uh, I think members of the trans community felt were more positively, you know, uh, uh, constructed in this kind of way. Um, So I, I guess I'm just unclear on, you know, where the real problem was other than that you're saying, you know, if literally anybody online says something extreme like this person should be fired, that's proof we have a safetyism problem. That seems like a bit too, like, low a bar, right? Yeah, and I, and I think that would be rather, rather reductionistic of, of, of you know, that, that part of my book, too. I, uh, I, I, I if, if my recollection is correct, I, I actually say, you know, one person even said this, not, not that I, uh, you know, uh, but I could be wrong. I, I wish I could look it up right now and, and find I, out. So uh, if it, if it was just one person, let's, let's, you know, I, I do believe you say yeah. one person at least, right. Yeah. If it really was just one person, is that a safetyism problem or is that just, well, one it wasn't just but it wasn't just one person. It was, it was lots of folks online. <laughs> Wait a minute. Complaint. <laughs> well, no, no, well, let me no, no. Yeah. One person okay. may have said, one person may have called for his name for his resignation, but there was right. lots of outrage to which this response you know, th- this wasn't a response to just one person who called for somebody's resignation, right? This response right, from but the president, her safety, apology, though, right? The, 
I mean, yeah, you're not saying any is, criticism. Yeah. I, you're saying any any criticism or outrage is safetyism. I no, I'm saying that when a president apologizes for the harm that was caused by a article that was favorable towards trans people in a, in a magazine that included more than one article on the subject, that there was no do you, harm done. Do you think you can unintentionally cause harm? Like, is it possible what, what, that this, this what, article what unintentionally caused harm? Yeah, from my understanding, there were specific critiques of it, um, not just that it was not written by a trans person, but also that it used specific terminology that is considered that are considered slurs within the trans community, um, that it talked about transitioning in ways that was not like the way that it, like trans individuals would prefer that these things kind of be talked about and that it mm-hmm. reproduced some, you know, common misunderstandings and, and that it wasn't vetted by anyone in the trans community, including the UU trans organization in particular it seems like that like literally they could have run it by someone in the trans community it seems like before actually doing it and like by not doing that it does give the impression that they weren't actually focusing on trans issues or or trans individuals in this in this kind of way now you might consider it like concept creep to call that harm but like I think I think there can be kinds of psychological harms that are caused by, you know, once again, having to feel like your story is being told by someone else and, and they're not doing a very good job of it. And nobody reached out to your community to try to hear from your actual community. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like those things should well, qualify as I, harm? I, I, or? I, I don't believe they should qualify as harm. No, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, from my perspective, the magazine article was was fairly favorable. And if the issue was that uh, the language wasn't quite the way some would like it uh, to be to have been uh, used, mm-hmm. then that is that is the very issue I'm getting at here. You know, well, this sort of pure, pro- pure, pure, linguist, linguistic pure, this linguistic puritanism that, you know, if anybody hears something that they slightly disagree with, it, it's it's harm. They've been harmed. I don't, we I don't cannot, think that's we cannot what I'm be saying in a free here. society. No, no. Like if you published an article that used the N-word, for example, someone would rightly get upset about it. And if you're calling that safetyism, that doesn't seem that seems like concept creep, which is a thing that you argue against in the book. It seems like in several of these cases, there's a substantial concept creep problem, specifically with regard to safetyism. I also want to note in the book itself, you don't actually describe any of the other objections besides that it was written by a trans person. And I have a quote here. You say that because essentially they uh, it is now forbidden to talk about trans issues uh or no, sorry, um, it's now forbidden for anyone to talk about trans issues but trans people, and that what replaces argument then is taboo. So you sort of deny that they had any substantial arguments, you don't lay them out, and you claim that their actual argument is only trans people can talk about trans issues, which was not at all, from what I can find, their their actual argument. Um, again, this doesn't feel charitable, and it feels well, like... Well, this is... This is some, know, this how do you is... respond? Well, I think this is this is something that is happening, that uh, there there is a mindset that we are so different from each other based upon these uh, these identities, these various aspects of our identities, that certain that certain groups have no right to talk about uh, issues that are not a part of their own identity. 
I think that is a that is a, a belief system and a pressure that is upon a lot of us, and I think it, I think it's happening in the Unitarian Universalist Association as well. Even if you do, though, the charitable thing I think would have been to include all of the actual arguments and also to highlight that, like, even if you think that that is a problem, it doesn't appear that anyone was actually arguing that literally only trans people can talk about trans issues. Well, you know, perhaps this is part of the dialogue, Aaron, that that goes on. I mean, I, I, I and I appreciate where you know where you're coming from, but I I have to say that I'm if I'm being criticized for what I didn't say versus what I did say. It, it really it can be a really long conversation, right? Because I feel like I, I'm criticizing uh, you for both because I think you you active you like positively mischaracterized as well as negatively mischaracterized their arguments. Mm-hmm. It seems to me. Um, yeah. We can talk about another yeah. example yeah. if you yeah. want. We could talk about the well, Alice well, Walker situation. Please. Yeah. yeah. So another one you cite in there is Alice Walker, who was uninvited mm-hmm. from a UU event after an NYU piece where she favorably you know, and uncritically reviewed a book of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories written by David Icke. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I'm not sure if you did any research into Alice Walker before you were writing about why you think this is safetyism. But just for folks to know, there is a well-documented history of Walker sort of in in favor of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. It's often been Mm -hmm. ignored, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. because she's a beloved author. Um, But for example, she wrote an anti-Semitic poem, um, which I think actually Lovecraft himself would really appreciate. Uh, And here's the ending, because I think it's worth highlighting. And then I want to hear sort of why you think it's safetyism to uninvite this person. So Mm -hmm. the, the poem ends, are goyims, quote unquote us, meant to be slaves of Jews? And not only that, but to enjoy it. Our three-year-old and a day girls eligible for marriage and intercourse, our young boys fair game for rape. Must even the best of the goyims us again be killed? Pause a moment and think what this could mean or already has meant in our lifetimes. This is a poem by her called Talmud, which is supposedly laying out stuff from the Talmud. These are blood libel, Holocaust denial kinds of conspiracy theories like, is it safetyism to uninvite somebody who holds those views? You know, I, I, I think that uh, Alice Walker is somebody who's added a lot to our society. And she has, again, she has certain ideas that some may or may not disagree with. I don't know that poem or exactly what it what it's about. It sounds, uh, you know, pretty, pretty far out there, as was her, I think, uh, admiration of of this uh, this fellow that uh, that she was associated with, I mean, I I, I certainly look into David what Ike, some, yeah. David Ike some of his stuff was, and I and as I said in my book, I can understand why people would be upset with uh, with that guy. Yeah, but nevertheless, Alice Walker is a celebrated you know been a celebrated person, and I and I think she's contributed a lot in her writing. Is admired by a lot of people. So you know, it wasn't until if I remember correctly this. Uh, this article came out about what she said about David Icke that that, that the con that the uh, controversy emerged, not around her poetry or anything else that she said. Well, the poem that- is another piece of anti-Semitism that unfortunately did not stir as much controversy as it should have. I, I agree with you that like the NYU uh, New York Times piece is the inciting incident for this particular response, but it doesn't seem to me that it's an it's a safetyist response, right? She's not being shut down because she holds some, you know, heterodox beliefs mm-hmm. that she should be free to express. She's being disinvited because she promotes really, really dangerous anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. And it seems like you kind of either don't take that problem very seriously in the book or didn't like 
didn't look into it enough to be convinced that it actually was a problem. It seems like you're sort of somewhat concerned about it, but like if you're if you're someone like me, right, and you're concerned that there is this concept creep moral panic going on with this safetyism kind of stuff, the thing you're really worried about is that this free speech, you know, absolutism is going to lead to un, you know, like the the platforming of Holocaust denial, for example. And when you can't take a hard line against somebody like Alice Walker, I think I'm justified that like I shouldn't trust that like, you know, if you were in control, this kind of you know, really dangerous conspiracism would be off the table. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, you know, again, I, I can't argue too much against things I didn't, didn't talk about in the book. Uh, I think a book, any book can, you know, we you can did include Alice Walker in the book. It. You chose to do that. Well, I did, but I didn't write a biography of her, right? I mean, that wasn't what the book was about. And, and by the way, I would also say that I don't strictly talk about safetyism, you know, that, that is, that is one issue I have, but, you know, so is, so is linguicide, the, the, the purification of the language and shutting people down who we disagree with, including, including Alice Walker. You know, I, I'm a, I'm, I'm registered as an anti-Semite myself because I have stood up for Palestinian rights. Uh, and so when I hear right. people, I'm also you know, called the people anti-Semitic are, for standing up for Palestinian rights, but that is not the same thing as being accused of anti-Semitism because you were promoting a David Icke conspiracy theory book. I think we can recognize that those are different things. And the fact that they both exist doesn't undercut, like the fact that one exists doesn't undercut the other one. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I mean, I, I guess I, I, I would have to say, right I, I, would ha I would have to understand more about, uh, you know, where you're coming mm -hmm. from with Alice Walker and where, what she, where she's coming from before I would, yeah. Uh, so and, and here's where I get frustrated. Mm -hmm. Right. And I, I apologize that I get frustrated. I wish I didn't. I really do try to go into these conversations with the most charitable mindset possible. But we've now covered multiple events where it seems like you weren't aware of really important key factors that I think are available through fairly easy research online. It takes not a lot of Googling to find these kinds of things, but it feels like they either you didn't do that research or they weren't included and your defense is well i didn't include that so it's not a it's not my fault but i think like it specifically is the problem that you did not include these things that you mm. created a narrative that makes it sound like alice walker was unjustly uninvited instead of like the uua became aware of the fact that she should not be invited in the first place because she has anti-semitic conspiracy beliefs yeah, well, I, I again, I'm not convinced of that. I would have to do some research on that. I and and I hate to say that I, you know, it's not. Why that did I you do that research before writing the book? I mean, there's <laughs> a lot. That have been there's research a, before I, I don't think so. No, there's there's a lot of research. No? There's a lot of research I could have done on a lot of things. Right, I, I'm, I'm writing. I'm writing this book based upon my experience and the information that I have and the inform, information that I that I did research. Okay, so you know, you we we can go back and say geez, you didn't do this, you didn't do this, you didn't include this, you're not talking about this. You're right, I didn't. You know, okay. we're, we're criticizing, you're criticizing, what I, you're criticizing what I didn't say. Well, I, I know, I get it. Okay. I, I've had it for years. Okay. Even as a minister, I give sermons every Sunday. Someone comes up, you didn't say this, you didn't say that. That's right. Yeah, that's not what I think is going on here. As a podcaster, I also get that all the time. But I think that's very different from mischaracterizing an important event and then making inferences based on that mischaracterization. Um, now, you claim you're not mischaracterizing it, but you also 
repeatedly have said that you haven't actually done enough research to know if you're mischaracterizing it. Um, but okay, let's talk about something else. Let's talk about the actual events surrounding the distribution of the book, because you also claim, I think, that those events prove you're right, essentially, that like the way you were treated in response to the publication of or the, the distribution of this book at this event uh, is proof of the problem. Is that is that fair that that's something you will point to in that way? Well, I would say that that uh, the response to the books certainly proved its points. Yes. OK, so I want to talk about the details there because I feel like I, it seems a little confused to me. So. Um, let me ask you this first. I don't know the answer to this question, but did you raise any concerns about like the concerns that you raise in the book? Did you raise them with the UAA in any way prior to the publication? Uh, no, no, I, 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 I've, I've, I've raised them in different uh, settings with other UU ministers only to be shut down pretty I quickly. See. So I, I, I know I know the drill here that you're not going to be. Uh, you know, that, that, that raising them in advance is not going to get you anywhere. In fact, it's going to probably get you in the same kind of trouble I got in raising them. Okay, so you chose you chose not to raise them ahead of time. Mm -hmm. Did yeah. you seek any comments or, or quotations from the individuals in the UU who you singled out for criticism in the book in your anecdotes? Uh, the, the people that I criticized, uh, I only thing I did, I didn't really criticize them. What I did was, was quoted them. Right. I think, did, so, did you reach out for, reach out to them to, to confirm that those quotes were accurate before publishing them? No, because they were published, they were published by those individuals. Those quotes came from, I from, okay. their, so from, you from, just pulled them from other things. I pulled okay. them from their, their written explanations of, uh, of events, mm -hmm. you know, like the, like, and you the, didn't, you didn't, but you didn't like reach out in terms of like, is this an accurate portrayal of what you mean in this? Do you no, have any comment no. on this? Okay. No, okay. I just no, want to make sure no. just trying to get a sense of what your process was mm -hmm. here. Um, you know, so from what I can gather the TikTok of the actual events. So like I said, you distributed the book at a large UUA event that you were hosting in Spokane, right? This was mm -hmm. like, a, I think, a yearly kind of meeting or something or a big big, yeah, big so, convocation so big, kind of this thing. This is a big uh, annual, annual general assembly, it's called. They have one every year. Right, annual general assembly. Thank you very much. Um, so yeah, the GA, I think y'all refer to it, right? Um, mm -hmm. And from what I can tell, you didn't tell the organizers that you were planning to distribute the book. Um, mm -hmm. Did you speak to your congregation ahead of time and let them know that you were planning on distributing the book? Yes, you did. I did. So they were they were all aware that that was coming. Yes. Well, they should have been. It was something I talked about in several sermons and in my annual report to the congregation that year prior to. Mm, that you were, that you were planning to, to do this. Thing. Yes. Yes. Okay. Cool. And so yeah. So what I what I gather right is that you brought this thing. The organization itself was not aware this was happening. Mm -hmm. um, the books were distributed. All of them were distributed. And then some individuals came to the organizers to complain about the content of the books, much the way that I have been. Um, and the organizers then reached out to you first informally um, to try to dialogue about the situation. And you declined to speak with them or return to the event, according to public accounts. Is that accurate? No. Okay. So what is your perspective not, not on what happened? Not accurate at all. Okay. Do you mind? Do you mind explaining yeah. to me sort of how that how that back and forth happened then at the event? Sure. Well, I I uh, I, I have had some concerns about where the religion is going, 
I wrote a book of essays on it. So I, I essentially wrote a book for you use and gave it away free to you use at a meeting of you use. I'm not an employee of the Unitarian Universalist Association. I'm a free agent. And uh, I gave away less than uh, about 200 copies of the 750 I had to give away before I was asked to a meeting on that same day, just four hours later, which I attended, uh, surrounded by about four individuals from what they call the Right Relations Team, who began very much talking about what was not in my book and criticizing me for not adding this, not adding that. And, and I said, well, you know, have you guys even read my book? Some of it was in there. And one of, one of the four admitted to having gotten about halfway through it. That was it. Uh, I, I went home after that meeting, which didn't you know, really end in any resolution of anything. I got a phone call about nine o'clock from somebody with the uh, planning, the, the General Assembly Planning Committee, asking me not to give my book away out, outside of uh, outside of our registered booth in the exhibit hall. Mm-hmm. I said, "Okay, no problem." Before that was over, so they were letting you distribute the book still. That they were they going didn't to stop yeah. you distributing yeah. the book. Well, well, supposedly, yeah. That was that was uh, that was the deal that I had made. And, and agreed to anyway. Okay. I mean, I, I was surprised because we've given away materials in the, the people give away materials in that exhibit hall all the time, but that's okay. I said, I can do that. And then uh, before that call ended, it was interrupted by a, by a uh, unregistered number, restricted number. And it was a individual who said, uh, I and the executive vice president of the UUA need to speak with you, like somebody else, I can't remember who the third person was, need to speak with you about the disruption your book is causing at General Assembly. We've set a time aside for 7 a.m. And, mm-hmm. I, and, and that was when I said, no, I don't think I'm going to be there for that. Uh, and what was your reason for not being there? Well, my reason for it was, uh, there was, it was not somebody saying, we want to discuss the contents or concerns of your book. We want to discuss the disruption it's causing. Only a few hours after I'd given it away, nobody could possibly have read it in that time. And, and uh, this is not, largely, this is not an organization I work for. I didn't appreciate being summoned to a 7 a.m. meeting. So that's when I was asked not to return to General Assembly. And I said, okay, that's fine. And the individual said, well, wasn't it that they were trying to figure out, like, let's let's talk about how to have you at General Assembly in a way that can that like, can balance these things. And that, like, in, in the absence of that conversation, they didn't, you know, like they couldn't allow you to be there because that wasn't like they weren't doing their due diligence in terms of like, my like, here's my problem. It doesn't feel like they kicked you out, right? It sounds like they let you still distribute the book. And as soon as they had found out that there was a problem, they hadn't had any forewarning, you hadn't, you know, told them about the book ahead of time or anything. They immediately were doing what any org would do, which is address a conflict within its organization. Because some people, I mean, like, your book's not that long. And a lot of the accusations are in the first part, right? Like, it's pretty easy to find specific claims. And if specific people were upset by those specific claims being inaccurate, it wouldn't take that long to discover that, it seems like. So 
I guess I'm I'm not seeing where they came down on you jackboot style as opposed to invited you to meetings to try to figure out how you could still attend the event that they'd, they'd had you organize because, you know, they thought that you were, you know, part of their fellowship. Oh, no, I, w- I was not in on the organization. No, they... they, they... Oh, you were not part of organizing? No, no, no. I they, apologize. They, they... I, thought that, I thought because it was in your area that you were involved well, with organizing. No, nor- normally it is, but no, I, I was excluded from that. Why were you excluded from that? Well, I don't know. You have to ask them. Uh, I have no, I no idea. But you, you know that you were definitely excluded from it in the sense that, like, someone prevented you from being. No, part of no, it? I don't know that. What I what I know is the tradition. Uh, the tradition is that a minister be that a, that the the minister in the area uh, of a general assembly is included in some of the programming that kind of stuff, and so that just. Didn't, you ha- didn't happen for you, whatever you, you, reason. You're, you're saying you, you were not included. I see. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I, w- um, I was not in on the planning. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, nevertheless, I, I, I mean, I, I felt I felt that this was heavy handed for this group to call me at, you know, nine o'clock on a restricted number and summon me to a seven o'clock meeting. Uh, it wasn't. Why is it the restricted wasn't, number it, important for you? I'm, I'm confused. Well, it was just it was just a strange one, and then and then when I got another call from 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 the from the restricted number uh, the next day, which I go into in my book in a, you know in a bit, it, it left me a message that had reframed the sort of tone of what was what was being requested of me. But there was no way for me to uh, to call this person back if I'd wanted to. Of course, it was it was too late by then. The general assembly was over within you know like four hours or something like that. So. I ask because it's one of those sorts of things that I feel like is a bit, it feels like a conspiratorial kind of thing to be like, they called me from a restricted number where it just could just mean, you know, they called you from like one of their private numbers or something like that. And they keep them restricted for various reasons. Who knows? Mm -hmm. Like, I, you know, I I guess I, I, I feel like you are painting this as an authoritarian crackdown when it sounds like they tried to get into dialogue with you multiple times. And after the event, it appears that there was a, a formal complaint process. Um, and as far as I can tell, you declined to participate in that process, which like genuinely forced them to remove you from fellowship because according to their rules, you can't have people around who refuse to participate in those kinds of like adjudication processes. That's just kind of like a basic thing that any organization I think would be forced to do in that situation. Um, you know, why did you decline like both the informal and the formal chances to like express your side of things? Well, again, the, the first night I'd already been into a meeting that was very hostile towards me. The, the tone of the caller on the restricted number was also rather hostile and I do not work for the UUA. I don't have to come to a 7 a.m. meeting to discuss the disruption that my book is causing. Uh, I, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm the informal I, process. I mean, the formal process took months, as far as I can tell. Well, and like, well, so you know, so, you, were, so you were given opportunity to express your perspective, and and like from what I gather, if you had at least like involved yourself in the process, they might not have removed you from fellowship, <laughs> or they, they probably no, they, wouldn't they, have they, potentially. No, they I, wouldn't, I mean, no, it's they, impossible to know either way. Well, it is impossible, so no sense speculating on that. But let's let's get the, let's get. They this, haven't let, they haven't removed your um they haven't removed your church from well they can't the UUA, they can't you know? they can't they can't remove. And your, and your church has chosen to stay with the UUA, right? So far, yeah. Why? Well, I think we want to see our, we want to see the religion turned around and, and restored to its to its values. But I, I want to get back to the the you know the, the idea that I that I didn't engage in the formal processes. 
that was something that was changed the next day, you know, uh, that, that, that they, you know, the language was we asked him to enter into a conversation to reenter covenant. It's very, very uh, kind of euphemistic. That's not the conversation that was that was uh, stated to me. And it was it, it was it was invented only after there was criticism about me having been asked not to return to the G.A. after giving away this book. Now, the 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 next the next communication I received uh, what was a, a a letter of censure, a very public letter of censure that was sent out to all of my colleagues, which essentially meant it was sent out to the entire UUA because it you know it was in an email form, so it went out to everybody. That that censure, uh, according to to the UU Ministers Association's own guidelines, they were supposed to let me know of any kind of formal grievance. There wasn't one and give me a chance to respond to that before any, any kind of censure would have gone out. So that was a violation of their own rules. Uh, we, we asked several times, and those, all those documents are in my second book, uh, asking them for information about their process before we could engage in dialogue. And we wanted it in writing in the same way that their public statement was in writing so that we would have something to fall back on. And we explained that. Uh, the, the, uh, the complaint that was filed against me by the Religious Education Association, I won't go into the full acronym, was also kind of an odd, an odd thing. Uh, you know, it, it was complaining to the Ministerial Fellowship Committee for violating UUMA, UU Minister Association guidelines, rather than with the UUMA itself, which was, which was uh, rather out of place. But the bigger issue is that, uh, you know, five, 500 ministers signed a public letter condemning me uh, with, within less than 24 hours of my book coming out. That's 500 people. I gave away less than 200 copies. And uh, they, they really violated very specific code, the, the code of ethics that prohibits that kind of thing. One, one person who solicited those uh, those signatures actually almost verbatim violated the code that forbids people from soliciting, uh, publicly soliciting negative comments about a colleague. So those, did those, you those submit a, a violation. No, like, like, no. Like, like, did you? No. Why not? Well, because I'm not, I'm, I'm not interested in in submitting violations against people for violating the ethics. It's just not my way. Uh, I, I don't, I don't care to do that. People do what they do. Why? And, I mean, do you well, think that why? those systems why? are like fundamentally bad or is it just like you personally don't want to use them or? Yeah, I personally don't want to use them. I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, uh, you know, pe- people treat people how they treat them. And, and uh, I don't need to get somebody, I don't care to get somebody in trouble for violating a code of ethic, unless it's something really, you know, really, really terrible. But this was nevertheless a violation of the code of ethics. And, and, and then, and then, you know, one of those individuals who 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 sent out a, a, a an additional letter, you know, the day of, saying that I am racist, homophobic, transphobic, ableist, and classist, without even citing a sentence from my book, was the person that was um, appointed to be the lead investigator in this complaint. 
And my letters, which are contained in the back of that book, you know, se several back and forth letters kept asking, you know, what about this individual? How can I possibly have a fair hearing when the individual that you have appointed to investigate this has already publicly condemned me? You know, and, and I, I never would get I would never get a response. It wasn't addressed by the by the the uh, ministerial fellowship committee, the MFC, until I received the letter saying that I'd been dismissed. So, no, it felt to me like a kangaroo court, and I was not going to participate in it. So what does it mean then for you to say, we're staying with the UUA as a congregation, but I'm not engaging with the UUA, but we're also trying to reform the UUA, but we're also calling for potentially a divorce? I guess I just feel like I'm not clear what your actual action plan here is mm -hmm, i, I mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. hard you know obviously it's challenging from my perspective right you've now made a bunch of um uh, additional claims there that uh i could to some extent you know like i could try to on the fly here fact check um i'm not sure what the name is of the person who you're referring to uh who you believe was biased against you i also i'm not clear why you would think that like the system necessarily was such that this one person's biases would make it impossible for you to get a fair hearing, it, it becomes challenging, of course, right? If you don't engage in the process because you believe that they're not going to act charitably and then they can accuse you of not being sort of charitable towards the people that you didn't uh, engage with prior to writing the book or engage with on all of these kinds of issues after the fact, like it doesn't feel like they're, it doesn't feel like there's a clear case there of them being the ones that are undermining sort of discourse here. Right. Like it seems like people were genuinely shocked and surprised when you distributed this material, but they did try to engage in conversation with you, even though they found it upsetting, offensive, you know, wrong, factually, um, you know, but. Well, I want to I want to just you, you, you I feel like your, your response here is that like their tone and their criticism was so in it was so harsh that like it wasn't worth trying to continue to engage with them on the principle of charity. Well, no, I, I mean, I, I, I really disagree with this. Uh, again, they violated their own processes. Uh, I had rep I had did have representation, a, what's called a good officer, who was helping me communicate with them, trying to get to the point where we could actually talk, but they would not give us the information they want. You can fact check if you read, you know, 40 per 40%. Okay, so here's the thing. You know, the UUA immediately started putting out this this meme that that he wouldn't engage. In fact, they used it so many times in one document. I quoted in that book. I think it was like forty times. You refused to engage. You wouldn't engage. You wouldn't engage. Once I wrote the Gadfly paper, that accusation went away. Right. So for, first, I was racist, homophobic, transphobic, ableist, classist. People started saying, "Where is it?" Has it, has we, it gone we, away? We've though, had we've had time to read the book. It's not in there. Where is it? So, well, he wouldn't engage. Okay. And then, and then on and on and on, he wouldn't engage. Then I wrote the Gadfly affair. And now it's now the documents there. 40% of that book is the raw documents, the letters back and forth, the emails, the communications. So if people disagree with my interpretation, they can read it and interpret it themselves. And then it has switched it to, you know, Oh, uh, Todd has refused to, or Todd quoted colleagues of color without their permission. For, you know, and used inflammatory language. When asked what colleagues of color, what what inflammatory language are you talking about, 
we still get no, no, no quotes. So if they're disturbed by the contents of the book, and that's one of the things I should have really started off saying, you know, there's a difference between what happened to me and the contents of my book. The, the contents of the book were, were not, there was not time for there to be the consideration necessary for 500 people, 500 ministers to sign a letter of condemnation when less than 200 books had only been handed out a few hours later. Right. So it's not the content that happened. There was a reaction against the, in my opinion, the dissent that a voice would, would that, that anybody would dare offer a dissenting opinion uh, than the one that we already hold. And I think that is the, you know, that is the problem that people like Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt and John McWhorter and Todd Ekloff, among others, are alarmed by. And I think there's ample evidence. And my, my case is a good example of what happened. Uh, how, of how this sort of thing happens, but there, there, you know, in, yeah. in my book, it is the UUA that has not been willing to engage, and I, you know, I, I'm I'm a bit a bit astonished that you would ask, you know, why, you know, how 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 would somebody who has publicly condemned you as a racist, homophobic, transphobic, ableist, classist, within less than 24 hours of the distrib- distribution of your book, not be able to give you a fair hearing. Why, why, why would I think that they would? They describe you as those things or the text as those things? Me, yeah. Okay. Uh, so I guess the reason I would say is because, in theory, the systems like that are set up such that, you know, that one investigator is not the one who gets to ultimately decide your fate, right? You would present your side of things, they would present their side of things, and then there would be adjudication of that. It's not like this is the judge, <laughs> okay. right, who is but, deciding but, but, fate. Yes. Is it, no, I, no, no, no you're saying? wrong, because the adjudicators, okay. which are the MFC, uh-huh. uh, at least two of those also signed uh, one or more of those letters of con- condemning. Okay. Okay. So Signing so you- the letters, right, is not the same. It seems like are you saying that they should withhold their own opinions and stay silent about the issue because they might be called upon to adjudicate the issue? And is that going to be true of anybody who's in this position that potentially could be called upon? Well, that's not, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that when you have three individuals who are going to adjudicate, who have already condemned you for a book they very likely had not read, uh, no, it's not, it's not going to be a fair process. I know, but why, why, why stay, why, here's my other question. Why not engage with the unfair process, right? You called this book, The Gadfly Papers, mm-hmm. which is a direct reference to Socrates. Very famously, Socrates engaged with an unjust criminal system because of his principles and died for it. Mm-hmm. Like, why wouldn't you engage with the system and then be, you know, I, I have engaged criticized, excommunicated. Here's what I'm saying, right? Yeah. You know, you, you say you engaged with it. They would say you didn't engage with it at the end of the day. They didn't. They weren't able to actually do the process. It seems like, right, and so right. there could be no ruling. Wouldn't you have preferred that they like do a kangaroo court and do a ruling and excommunicate you so that you could then thoroughly prove that their system is is flawed and is failing to do the thing? No, no, I, no. I'm sorry. I don't mean to laugh. No, I don't want to. I don't want to engage in the kangaroo court. And, and you know, the other thing is, is this is kind of a an interesting story. I hope you'll tolerate for just a minute. But when I was in college, I had a friend who'd been a former Jehovah's witness, uh, mm-hmm. three, three generations, the older, older student, obviously. And, uh, the big, big story, you know, he had a baby that had a blood disease, needed transfusion and, and, uh, they refused because of their beliefs and the hospital took them to court and they were going to, you know, give her the blood transfusion. And anyway, the, the, uh, the guy got, 
you know, he, he, he got in trouble for not kidnapping his own baby from the hospital, if you will, when, when the church asked him to. And, and, and this led him to kind of eventually have a change of heart, and he, and he, be, he became a Southern Baptist. But on the, e- the eve of that, uh, they had summoned him to a trial. And he talked to a Southern Baptist minister he befriended, who, which was taboo to begin with. And he says, I just don't know what to do. I have no, absolutely no idea what to do here. I mean, they've summoned me. They could take away, you know, my membership. Uh, you know, I, I would lose my, you know, all these sort of things that he was worried about. His wife was also part of the Jehovah's Witness. And after hearing all this, the, the Baptist minister just looked at him sort of dumbfounded and said, well, don't go. And it was like a light went off in Paul's head. Like, you know, the, this, these are these are not the, the authorities, right? You are you are an American citizen. You do not have to do this. This is your chosen religion. But they have only authority they have over you is the authority that they that that you grant them. And I do see the Unitarian Universalist Association leadership in the same light. I consider them an authoritarian group that is radically altering our religion to become a doctrinal creedal religion complete with a, with a, with a, a doctrine of original sin and and an illiberalism that uh, is the counter to what I believe it should be and I don't need to uh, recognize their authority I can say no I'm not going to participate in this especially when when you have already treated me in a way that is that is so uh, underhanded do you feel like they might have something to say about perhaps that it was underhanded to distribute this thing at this large event without giving anybody a heads up that at least there might be some controversy they should try to be aware of or something like that? It does seem kind of like a publicity stunt, don't you think? Uh, well, no, it's not, it was not a publicity stunt. Rather, rather it seems like one, one or not. So I, I, pre, you know, I, I can appreciate how you would say it would look like one, but that's not my intention. You know, in fact, you know, Aaron, I, I gave that book away with fear and trembling. Okay, uh, I, I I knew that this uh-huh. could could cause some repercussions in my life. I didn't know what they were, but I say that in the beginning of the book, right? Uh, in in the introduction, yeah, it that, just it just seems like like your behavior doesn't gel with like like if you were concerned, why not talk to people in the community more? Why not workshop some of these ideas so that you could be confident that they would land better and get more support? I, I'm not saying compromise your ideas. Well, they've gotten I'm great support. Dialogue these, with people. These, like these ideas have got these ideas have gotten great support from 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 some you, people, from, right? from you small, use small well group. no lot, lots of people all over the country yeah mm-hmm. this 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 is from what really, i gather there hasn't been any statistical like there, there isn't much evidence to suggest that like a large number of people have left the movement relatively speaking well they're not leaving they're or, not leaving the movement but they're they're pushing back or, against or have the movement. Expressed, yeah. they're pushing back against the movement okay. yeah and right. and I, I, I know sure because I get I get churches I get yeah. churches well I don't you know I don't I have no way of knowing the statistics it's a very small religion right I mean you know that it's and mm-hmm. it's getting smaller all the time less than a thousand yeah. less than a thousand churches now less than twenty thousand kids enrolled in religious education uh, you know so yeah. I think you know there's just not that just not that many of us so it's very marginal to begin with. Can, can I ask what you concretely think they should have done differently that would have let you come to the table? Is it just that they shouldn't have said the things that they were that they were, they shouldn't have been critical of you prior I, to I the think, process? I, I think that there should have been some time to read it. 
and then that there should have been an opportunity to talk about it. And, and you know, th- there have been other ministers who have called for that dialogue with the UUA too. Those documents are also included in my in my book, but there's been no dialogue. In fact, there's been no, there's been I, no. I just want to be clear. This book is a hundred pages long. Most people could probably read this in an afternoon. Like it's not a long book. And you're the sort of repeated suggestion that like no one had read it seems deeply implausible to me. Well, I know you I, said I won't one say, I won't meeting. say, I won't say nobody, you know, nobody could have read it, but we're talking about being at a general assembly, right? Where people are right. going to conferences and meetings and those sort of things. I gave it away right. on a Friday, started giving it away on a Friday in, you know, in the afternoon, probably around one o'clock. I gave away less than 200 copies and I was condemned by hundreds of ministers the next day. Okay, but it's very easy for people who have a copy of the book to say it says X, Y, and Z, which is false, mm-hmm. and X, Y, and Z, which is inaccurate. And here are the passages from the book that say that shouldn't we you know, condemn this or something. Well, like two, that, two, right? like, two things again, that, that did happen. That did happen. That right. is what happened, right? The, right. The, the people who signed that letter, I mean, the preamble to it said, please don't read this mm-hmm. book. Trust those of us who have seen it, not read it. <laughs> Trust those of us who have seen it. That, that was the solicitation for, for signing that letter. So yes, a lot, a lot of ministers trusted those who had put out that, who had drafted the letter and put it out and asked them to sign it. Well, however, uh, outside of yourself, Aaron, mm-hmm. uh, this is the the first time anybody has quoted anything in my book and and criticized me for it. Okay, I I, 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 I am I, yet I, to I receive people any... online who absolutely quoted you and criticized specific passages, mm-hmm. as far as I could tell. Really, okay, like the fact that you, yeah, like the fact that you didn't highlight the other objections to the LGBT article okay. in your book. Oh, they said explicitly okay. that you only, you know, highlighted the concern that it wasn't written by a trans person. This was, you know, an article that was very easy for me to find online. And this is the problem is that your argument is predicated on the idea that no one is engaging with your ideas. And I can find tons of evidence that people are engaging with your ideas. You just don't like the way they're engaging with it. And you think that they're being extremely well, critical well you're, assi- you're, a, you're assigning motive, motives to me now my friend and i and, I, and I, no i'm i'm saying i'm describing your behavior your behavior as you've described well, you said you, you said i just don't behavior. you said i just don't like this I, I i don't i don't know i don't i don't read these things on i mean I, I i'm not a big social media person so if people are saying things on social media i i'm not yeah i'm not i'm not reading those what what i what i am talking about is the 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 the, the professional communications between myself and the UUA and the UUMA and, and uh, the, the the countless uh, you know the, the letters of condemnation, the letters of censure, do not quote my book. And when when asked to please cite the passages the that were in the open letter, at least one they say you directly say sadness, fear, and anger, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. I sometimes yeah. feel yeah. about what's going on in this, my religion, right? They are, right. they right. do quote some passages, right? Well, um, that and just, they specifically just... break down, but they also specifically break down their disagreements with you about like your misrepresentation of, of what their claim is about white supremacist culture, for example. Um, well, you know, but they don't say how I, they don't say how I misrepresented it. You know, they don't, they're not, they're um, not actually, they're not actually quoting how I misrepresented it or where, or where that can be found. Instead, they actually in that letter, if I remember right, the way it's structured, instead of instead of 
discussing what he says, we're going to we're going to outline what our values are, what our beliefs or something to like that. So so, you know, they're, they're outlining what they believe as if I don't believe in them. And a lot of those things they listed, I did, if not all of them. Or I do. I, I so. Yeah, I don't see a specific passage on the white supremacy thing, but it is definitely in your book where you specifically and I have I have specific points about this. I noticed we're I realize we're, we're way over time. You're a hard interviewer. You're a hard interviewer, man. We're yeah, that's I'm glad to hear it. Um, let's let's say this. Uh, I, I have to I have to torture you still in the enlightening round fashion. Sure. I'm okay. sure you already feel like right. you've been plenty tortured here, but right. uh, as part of our our rules of play here, I have to do that and then. If you can stick around, we could do some extra VIP stuff and we can talk about the part three of the book that you feel like did not get enough attention. Okay. Does that yeah. seem fair? Yeah, sure. sure. Before we do that, though, I, I always, before I do the enlightening round, I like to give people a chance to share their uh, other resources that they would recommend. And I'll let you plug your stuff after the um, enlightening round. But are there other things that you would suggest people check out if they want to better understand where you're coming from in all of this? Well, there, there's a new book out called, uh, uh, fairly new, called Used to Be UU by Jay Kiskel and Frank Casper that, that goes back and sort of researched the, uh, the decline of democratic principles in the UUA since probably about 2009, I think, is when it started, according to their book used to be UU. Oh gosh, what's the new one by David's David Cycleback just came out. You know, and and a lot of the a lot of the books I cite in in, in the uh, back of the Gadfly papers too and the bibliography there are are, uh, are also uh, you know some some interesting books and I and I you know I you probably disagree with me about you know stuff like uh, you know, the, the stuff that Carling of the American Mind or, you know, those sort of authors. But there's some good stuff out there. I really liked uh, Eduardo Vanilla Silva's book. I think he does a good job of, of both discussing racial issues, but also showing how, how, he, how to derive at, 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 uh, conclusions in a responsible way. I think uh, Philip Devine's book, Human Diversity and the Culture Wars, is really, really a pivotal one. Yeah, so those would probably be be some of them. Uh, Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. Great. Hey, look, I recommend that people read Coddling. I've read it. I strongly disagree with parts of it, but you know, like with much of Height's stuff, it's not one hundred percent false. It just goes in the wrong directions on a variety of, I think, policy conclusions and um, diagnostic concerns. Um, but you know, I think these are at least issues worth debating or I wouldn't have had you on to debate them. And I do appreciate you coming on, um, given that I'm such a pain in the ass and all that. Oh, you're not a pain uh, in the ass. No, you're, you're a good man. And I appreciate your, your, your putting me under the, under the fire here. So, uh, it's okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, if you feel that way, I'm going to torture you some more. Let's so, do it. <laughs> this is the enlightening round. Why don't you just tell me the right answer? Well, that's what's so great about the trolley problem is that there is no right answer. Uh, and this is Enlightening Round 2, Trolley Boogaloo Edition. So, for folks who are not familiar, I am going to give you a series of circumstances, and you are going to tell me when you should or should not pull the lever. Okay? 
So this is going to be your trolley problem kind of okay. situations. Mm -hmm. um, assume all the individuals are innocent strangers, unless I say otherwise. Uh, are, you, are you ready for your trolley I, I, I think so. I'm terrible at games, but let's try it. Okay. So first of all, should you pull the lever and save five by killing one? Yes. Okay. Should you then save five by pulling the lever and causing a machine to shove someone onto the tracks? Yes. Okay. Um, next round. Say, would you save yourself by killing one? Should you save yourself by killing one? Excuse me. Oh, uh... Well, I would say no. No. Okay. What about save yourself by simply letting another person die? So you're on the main track, or you're on the, uh, the side track, and you simply don't pull the lever and get yourself killed. Uh, well, I, I would save myself, but I, I would feel terrible about it. So ethically, I think I should sa sacrifice myself to save the other individual. Okay. Now, would you, or should you, excuse me, should you, save your favorite body of artistic work by killing the artist? Uh, no. Okay. What about your favorite body or the most, uh, let's say a significant body of revolutionary scientific work by killing the scientist? No. What about save the only existing sentient artificial intelligence by killing one human. No. Hmm. What if it turned out that you were the sentient AI? Should you kill the other human to save yourself? Kill the human to save yourself? I wish I wasn't the uh, sentient AI, but no. Okay. What about going back to the letting die opportunity. If you're a sentient AI and you have the chance to let a human die or sacrifice yourself, should you sacrifice yourself? Yes. Okay. Uh, what about save a random non-human animal by killing one human? Uh, no. Okay. What about save your very favorite non-human animal by killing one human no okay what about saving an entire ecosystem of animals by killing one human no okay you survived how do you feel <laughs> challenged challenged there was some inconsistency there hmm very good always fun to have some inconsistency yeah uh so Todd, do you want to let folks know one more time where they can find you and, and your content? Yeah, uh, my uh, you can you can find me easily online at, at uh, uh, uuspokane.org. That's that's the church I'm minister of, uuspokane.org. Uh, my books are on uh, Amazon Kindle. Uh, the Gadfly Papers, The Gadfly Affair. There's an old book I wrote many years ago called A Gospel for Liberals. And my favorite book that I've written uh, in between The Gadfly Papers and The Gadfly Affair was uh, Evolution's Way, which is a much, much brighter conversation. Uh, so, yeah, all, all those are all those are on are online. 
Great. All right. Well, thank you for coming on and having the chat. Um, and like I said, folks, uh, join us on Patreon and stick around and listen to some more uh, uncomfortable argument, I suppose. Um, but no, I really do appreciate it. Thank you. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. As always, I'd like to thank our top-tier patrons, our Archon-level patrons, Alex Beneshek, Jay Aldenwalt, Serious Inquiries Only, Lawrence Shielding, Dude, Fix the Vote, Neil Polzin is now an elected official. Learn more at neil4covina.com, Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And all the thanks to our Archduke-level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space. And while you're at it, check out our wonderful editor, Louisa Lyons' Filmed Live Musicals podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also follow me on Twitter at ETVPod or email me at voidpod at gmail.com. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and bonus VIP content. Most of all, no matter your denomination, you are the void, and the void is you. 